and welcome to The Future Report, a podcast hosted by social research company McCrindle for anyone curious about the future. My name is Ashley Fell, and each week I'll be sitting down with a guest to discuss a topic or trend that you need to know about. Breaking into the housing market is a hot topic amongst today's younger generations with skyrocketing house prices, rising cost of living and low wage growth making it pretty difficult to get a foothold. So if younger generations can't break into the housing market, what sort of impact will this have on their financial aspirations and wealth accumulation as they age and into the future? So joining me today to shed some light on this topic is social researcher and demographer Mark McCrindle. Hey, Mark, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Ash. Good to be here. We are talking today house prices, intergenerational wealth transfer, finances. That's obviously not the only sort of area of life that we get some intergenerational transactions. I mean, one of the really interesting platforms or places this happens is on social media where viral trends get sort of created by anyone of any generation, but probably more likely Generation Z. And one that's doing the rounds at the moment is the It's Corn song. Have you seen it, Mark? And what are your reflections on it? (laughs) I have seen it uh, because of my Gen Z and Gen Alpha kids who showed it to me, and uh, and I, I thought it was classic. You know, it's good fun. It's uh, it's just the internet, isn't it? How um, <laughs> yeah. you know a, a fun little interview gets uh, turned into a song. Um, but I think the fact that uh, me at least as a Gen Xer um, only heard about it because the Gen Zs who were already across it and had been sharing it around brought the phone physically to me and said, watch this, Dad. You know, that's that sort of says a lot. Uh, we're sort of the last to, to hear about it, uh, not normally through the connections uh, digitally, but through being shown these things. But hey, we can all share the fun and the creativity of these memes. And uh, and that's, that's sort of an intergenerational moment. It is. And I feel like, yeah, that the It's Corn song is just so pure and so funny that it does <clears throat> transcend the generations. I've I've seen it and I was showing my husband it the other day and I think at first he was like, what on earth is this? And then and then he was like singing one of the main parts. So it's, it's very catchy. It's very good to see. But I guess today we're not just talking about intergenerational wealth, but we're also talking about income and housing and wealth accumulation across the generations and how that's differed for each generation. Uh, One of our most accessed resources that we have is an infographic and it talks about the wealth and the income of each generation. Uh, It is, as I mentioned, one of our most accessed ones. It paints an interesting picture of, yeah, as as I mentioned, the wealth that each generation sort of has, but also their income. And it's, it's it's quite an interesting story when you look at those two areas. Mark, how would you describe to our listeners on the podcast what that infographic sort of says about the different generations and their wealth and income? Well, we tried to graphically display, and here's a here it is, uh, those that are watching the YouTube version of this, uh, but you can find this uh, this infographic on our website. Mm. It tries to communicate the difference in each generation's share of wealth and income, as you said, but let's talk about wealth for a moment, and compares that to their share of population. And so, as you'd expect, the younger generation, let's just take the working age, which we've done in this in 10-year age groups from 25 to 34-year-olds, then we went 35 to 44, etc. The younger generations have a slight 
slightly larger demographic footprint, slightly more of them, although fairly similar size in those 10-year age groups till we move up to the baby boomers in their uh, late 50s, early 60s. But what's uh, remarkable is when you contrast the demographic footprint to the economic footprint, and probably, as you'd expect, the younger generations have a smaller economic footprint in terms of their ownership of the national private wealth compared to the older generations. But the remarkable aspect is how much it changes. So for the generation wise, the 25 to 34 year olds, they're 15% of the population, but they own half their share of population. They own just 7% of the national private wealth. By the time we get up to the 55 to 64 year olds, they're just slightly smaller, 12% of the population demographically, but they own 29% of the wealth economically. And so their economic footprint is two and a half times their demographic footprint, while for the younger generation, their economic footprint is half their demographic footprint. And so it does show clearly the life stage factor that as we move through those life stages, hopefully there'll be a bit more of that wealth accumulation, a bit more of that asset appreciation if people get into home ownership. But I don't think we'll quite get to see that high watermark as we now have with the baby boomers who as a whole are a quarter of the population but own well over half of the of the national wealth. I don't think, in other words, when the millennials get to that life stage, they'll quite have that more than doubling of wealth relative to their share of population. So it really is a sign of the economic half-century miracle that the baby boomers have experienced where they've seen house prices quadruple in their tenure. And uh, and that's why they really do own such a large proportion of the wealth relative to their size. Uh, but it also does indicate that clearly, as those 60-somethings become 70-somethings and 80-somethings, much of that wealth will be passed on. And that's the intergenerational wealth transfer. We estimate that to be about $3 trillion that'll be passed on just self-evidently over the next 20 years as those 70-somethings become 90-somethings or beyond, and uh, and obviously that money will be transferred. So there's there's a, some economic gains to come for the Gen Ys, but even with that, um, probably we're, we're witnessing a, a unique circumstance that saw the baby boomers accumulate so much of the private wealth. Yeah, it's an amazing statistic that, as you mentioned, the baby boomers comprise just around a quarter of the population, but own more than half the national private wealth. It's it's incredible. And I imagine a key a part of that equation is that they have accumulated wealth through their assets appreciating over time and a pretty good economic sort of few decades that they've lived through. Um, as, we, as you mentioned there, Mark, there's some doubt maybe about whether Gen Y will be able to achieve that same sort of wealth accumulation. Is part of that equation, do you think, because it's it's been harder for Gen Y to get into the housing market? I mean, we hear that so often. Uh, we've talked about it on the podcast before. I'm a Gen Y myself. You know, I, I know that it's it's difficult. You've got the perspective um, and and from the data as well. Do you think that's that's an accurate sort of qualm that the Gen Ys have? Like, oh, it's so hard to get in. Is that is that fair for us to be saying? It is. It is fair because we've got the data to show that. Sure, you know, um, property prices have gone up, but so have incomes over that time. Baby boomers will be quick to point out. Um, however, property prices have gone up much faster than incomes. In fact, we've got another infographic uh, that <laughs> compares that, and it's, it talks about 40 years of the fading Australian dream. And what we've done in this one is looked at the average 
annual full-time earnings. And then we've looked at the average capital city house price and unit price as well, and just made some very straightforward comparisons. And it's fascinating to see that in 40 years from the early 1980s to today, the average full-time earnings in Australia has increased sixfold. Uh, so back then it was just under $16,000 per year people would take home. Uh, now it's, uh, it's well over $90,000 full-time annual earnings, uh, a sixfold increase. But over the same period of time, your average house price, capital city house price, for example, in Sydney has increased not six times, but 17 times uh, from 78,000 back 40 years ago to 1.3 million today. And that's not even at the peak of the of the growth. Melbourne prices, early 80s, a detached house, 44,000. Today, the median house price is almost a million dollars. That's a 22-fold increase against incomes that have only gone up six-fold. So you can see that house prices are going up more than three times the rate of incomes. And that's why it's just harder for young people today to get their foot into the onto the property ladder compared to their parents. Now, yes, young people more likely are in a couple household where there's two earners, whereas their parents probably just had one uh, key breadwinner back in the day. But as mm. we've said, you need three times the, the annual earnings relative to the house price now as you need then. So not even two is quite going to do it. We, we also on this infographic put it in another way where we talked about the income to house price ratio. So across almost all of the capital cities 40 years ago, the average house price was just over two times, maybe in some capitals three times the average annual earnings. Now just think about that for a moment. And that was the old rule of thumb, you know, make sure you don't take on a mortgage that's more than twice your average earnings. Well, if someone takes on a mortgage for twice the average earnings, $180,000, they're not going to be able to buy a lot. Uh, we've had <laughs> yeah. to blow that metric out because now the house price is not two times or three times average annual earnings. As we've uh, put down here, it's more likely six times average annual earnings. In Sydney, it's nine times average earnings um, uh, when you put it in that ratio form. So again, we're seeing people have to take on far greater mortgages, far higher risk. Now, baby boomers would be quick to say, yes, but money is cheap. The interest rates are so low, they've got a four in front of that percentage rate, and they do. And baby boomers will say, hey, we were paying 17% in the 80s, and they were. But remember, the house price is only two or three times average earnings, um, the annual salary. So within a year or two or three, you would pay down bulk of that, maybe four or five years, you might have even paid off the place if you're very disciplined. Mm. So mm. you're only sustaining those double-digit incomes, uh, double-digit um, interest rates for a shorter period of time, not the 20-year mortgages now uh, that is you know, a bit of a, a realistic you know, life frame of these mortgage loans that people enter into. And yes, low interest rates, but on the rise. Now, now they're still lower, even if we get to 7% um, from the 4 or 5% now, and we, we, we may well. That's still lower, and young people ought to keep this in mind, than what we had for a decade and a half of since the year 2000 when it was rare for interest rates to fall below 7%. So we've had unusually low interest rates for the best part of this decade, getting back to maybe a more normal setting. So people need to keep that in mind as they think about the, the rental. But the fact is that there's uh, it's just more expensive to buy a home. I guess 
you know, there's always nuance to this because the homes that people are buying are not like the homes of the 1980s. There's a lot more technology built in. They're better materials. They're lower cost to run because of the green initiative. So you're sort of, yes, you're spending more on the home, but you're buying more home uh, with those dollars. And um, and as I said, two incomes might do it. Lower interest rates will help. Sometimes parents are helping out. So there's a way of getting it done today that perhaps the baby boomers 40 years ago didn't have that same level of support. But nonetheless, um, it is harder to to get going on the property ladder today than at any other time in, in recorded economic history. Yeah, there we have it, millennial friends listening to the podcast, that it is justified concern. And we actually put out a little um, Instagram reel on our McCrindle account um, tapping into like a popular trend going on at the moment with this choir singing and it kind of they, you know, they think, you think the song's over and then it just keeps escalating and they do another key change and, and people are putting to that kind of really dramatic stories. And we did that kind of trying to bring this infographic to life in terms of, you know, w- watching our grandparents and our parents buy homes. And it was only, yeah, a couple of three times their annual income. And today it's 14 times. And we used Sydney as a case study because we hear a lot about Sydney and Melbourne being the most dramatic sort of cities. But then you look at this infographic that you're talking about as well, Mark, and some of the more affordable places around Australia to buy, let's take um, Adelaide as one, you know, the median house price is just shy of $600,000. And, you know, even in in Hobart, it's $726,000. So these are big mortgages that people are taking out. And I think for a lot of people I'm talking to, even just anecdotally in my own life, even though interest rates aren't as high as you mentioned, still taking out a loan for such a big amount, even just about like trying to grab your head, grapple with, you know, the amount of interest you'll need to pay over that 30-year loan. And you were saying before, like some people in the past might have paid off their homes in a couple of years. And I was talking to a family friend of ours recently and they they said they, they'd borrowed some money, I think, from their parents to pay off their mortgage and there was an interest-free loan or something like that. Um, so, you know, blessing for them. But their condition was they couldn't have children until they paid it off. And they paid it off before they had kids. And I'm like, gosh, that you would not hear that sort of story in today's yeah. market among the millennials. True. And and I think that's that's the tough thing that even if people are moving to the regions or trying to get it done because they want to start a family, they want to keep moving forward with their life. So they move to Hobart or something. It's just harder even mm. there than it's ever been before. You know, and a, a, a millennial might point out to a to a baby boomer, well, you know, have a look at the prices back in 1981, 82, you could buy a house in, in Hobart for $30,000. And the boomer would say, yeah, but we were only earning $15,000 a year back then. Uh, but then we would say, okay, so two years of full-time earnings was the equivalent of a house. Uh, mm. Today, sure, $90,000 earnings, but the home is $600,000 in Hobart. So you're uh, you're looking at that, that six-fold, um, uh, you know, uh, multiple to, to get that home. That's that's the challenge that we face. And so uh, it's, it's longer um, carrying debt. Uh, there's mm. extra debt that young people have, like a study debt. Their parents didn't have hex. Uh, there was yeah. indexed and, and accumulating uh, to pay down. Um, and they didn't have some of the other expenses of today, the subscription services, the yeah. mobile phone, the, the technology that needs updating every couple of years. Um, it's all very well to say, as we hear from the baby boomers, yeah, we were you know eating 
baked beans out of cans because we were paying down the mortgage. We were doing it tough. That's that's true. But but uh, there are whole new sets of expenses. Um, and you look at the price of petrol, and you do need a car in Australia to get by. You know, generally, um, costs are going up. We're in a new inflationary environment. And so there are a lot of challenges hitting young people, even as they look at, at getting uh, into this Aussie dream. And that's what does make it so tough today. So if we think about millennials and, and Gen Z too, um, being, I guess, in the dramatic term, locked out of the housing market or locked out of not being able to buy property, because I, I feel like just even anecdotally, it's ingrained in a lot of us because we saw it work for our parents' generation that that buying a house and having that asset is how you grow your wealth because it has worked in many cases for the baby boomers or for Gen X. But if that is not the way that these younger generations are able to accumulate wealth, do you see them going down other routes or other paths to, yeah, maybe invest their money in different ways? There is a little bit of that. Um, Hopefully, there won't be too much of that. Hopefully, they're not putting it all in Bitcoin, for example, (laughs) uh, which is a very generational sort of trendy thing to do. You know, I'm going to jump on that roller coaster because that's a very dangerous one. Uh, The old crypto or NFTs or whatever else. The Mm. the best thing, the reason we call it the Aussie dream, the reason we're talking about it as being this, this wealth vehicle the, the, the family home is that it's well treated from a tax perspective. It creates forced savings because you've got the mortgage. So what are you going to do? You're going to pay that thing down because you don't want to be paying interest. And mm. so it forces you to save. If you didn't have a mortgage, probably be living large and spending that money. Uh, unfortunately, there's nothing then to pay to, to have at the end of that um, great lifestyle uh, when you spend it on on holidays. So the forced savings is a key thing. The appreciation is a key thing. People say, oh, is it going to keep appreciating? Maybe not at the same rate, but you look at the property prices, if it's a good solid house in a good area because of our demographic growth, it will double, not every 10 years, but more often than not, every decade or so, you see property prices doubling. It consistently remains true. We have flat times. We have times when property prices do go backwards, but over the long term, they go up. And there's no reason to think that they won't because we still do have more demand as we grow than there is supply. And that, I think, will ever remain the goal. So I think it's great if the next generation, just like the previous ones, can get into property, even if it um, it does stall or suddenly goes south for a little while. Hey, it's a roof over one's head. It's a practical, usable investment because you live in it. And it gives the security as people start families and, and connect uh, in their area. They've got that stability rather than the insecure rental where the average Australian, we know from the census data, moves every 1.8 years because mm. uh, the, the, either their needs change or the landlord's selling it. You've got the security when you own your own place. So for so many reasons, socially, economically, just the 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 sensibility of, of being forced to save and, and cut back lifestyle in those um, early years, um, it does have some great benefits. Um, but but I guess the question is, but how can they do it? And there are ways. I mean, if we look at what's happened over the last couple of decades, as prices have continued to rise, we've been seen a generation shift from detached homes to units, and you do get better value there uh, because they're, they're obviously lower cost generally than a detached home. We've seen people look to other areas outside of Sydney or Melbourne, you know, move to regions and other capitals, and we've discussed some of that. And even though We've seen in some of those smaller capitals and regions, prices go up at a faster rate than even Sydney or Melbourne. 
that may have stalled for a little while, um, they're still cheaper than they are in Sydney and Melbourne. So there's other places to go uh, to achieve the dream. There's other ways of getting there. So the good old bank of mum and dad coming to the party, <laughs> maybe not necessarily giving money, but maybe just underwriting um, some of the um, some of the loan or, or, or supporting in some way, maybe just letting the the children move back home while they save up for that deposit. Um, all of that has helped. We're seeing siblings come together to buy places uh, rather than just an individual or a couple. And we're seeing people say, look, I believe in property. You know, I believe in those benefits, uh, even though I can't afford to buy where I want to live. Um, I'll maybe rent where I want to live, but I'll buy somewhere else. So the rent vesta, they're renting, even though they're investing elsewhere. And, and Whatever they do, uh, they've still got a share in the property market and they'll benefit from the, the the realities of population growth, asset appreciation, the forced savings, even the favourable tax treatment um, in terms of ne- negative gearing. If it's a if it's a, a property, you know, if it loses money, that, that comes off the income um, in terms of tax um, assessment and um, and ultimately somewhere to live if uh, if things go south. So yeah, there are ways of getting at it, and we're seeing a new generation get creative in how they uh, continue that Aussie. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear you talk about this, Mark. I was, I think I was sharing with you before off off mic, perhaps that I was reading through a Twitter um, sort of stream of comments from someone about the need for us to be equipping the next generation with knowledge and awareness of of how to manage their personal finances, of how to build and accumulate wealth because investments perform really well when when they started early because they appreciate over time. And yeah, it's just interesting to hear about these sorts of conversations because yeah, there could be definitely a case or a whole podcast about the need for us to have school subjects where we teach kids these sorts of aspects. Because even as you were talking, I feel like I heard a lot of that when I was younger and I didn't really understand it all, but I was like, I just need to buy a house. We need to buy a house. Saying to my husband, you know, I was like, I don't really understand all the ins and outs of it way back when, but it was just this kind of surefire way that a lot of people have a lot of trust in and believe in um, around accumulating wealth. Yeah. And it, it makes sense. And and one other thing on that, Ash, how, how small things grow over time, um, a little example that hopefully we'll offer some encouragement to this generation as they think how unlucky they are compared to their parents. <laughs> there is one unique thing they have that their parents didn't have, and that is superannuation. And the habit mm. from day one on the job at 10.5% uh, of their income being put mm. into compulsory superannuation that can't be accessed, that can't be uh, drawn down on. Now, just some quick calculations on that. If someone's their first job, let's say, is at 22. They finish a uni degree. Uh, they've never worked anywhere else. So from 22, they start um, their superannuation journey at that compulsory super rate. And let's say they never contribute even an extra dollar. And they're on the average salary and they stay on the average salary till they retire. Now, let's let's say it's 69. Um, it's currently 67 is retirement age. But let's say it goes up to 69, being very modest with all of this. Uh, and again, never increasing their income beyond the the nine we've discussed about ninety three thousand dollars is the average they're they're super uh, and and the other assumption here is let's say they only make two percent on their super above the cost the admin costs and the tax costs it is treated favorably so they make two percent per annum net gain on that super they will walk away with 1.2 million dollars at 69 years of age when they retire without doing anything without making any sacrifice. That's just the money put in by the employer at that compulsory. And that assumes 
that they're not making extra contributions and it assumes that the super rate won't increase and it probably will. So so that's a minimum they'll walk away with. Now, their parents at retirement didn't have $1.2 Their superannuation was their house. Uh, so mm-hmm. that is a benefit today, a, a, a real benefit that young people have that we ought to keep as part of the equation. Because even if they're getting close to retirement and maybe in their own place or maybe in an investment, they have a bit of debt, um, that they're at least likely to have that sort of money if they've worked um, consistently over that period of time. So so that's one thing in the favor of young people today, which their parents, assuming they started work in the 80s or, or even into the early 90s, they didn't have super until it came in in 1992. And even then it was like 2% uh, when they began. So it's at a whole new level for today's young people. Yes, us millennials need some some good news in this space. So I appreciate that, Mark. Um, I think we've talked about this on the podcast um, a few times and we talked about it only a couple of weeks ago with Steph Razy about Gen Z's top hopes and dreams, which is based on some research that we conducted last year. And it's, it's shown our research time and time again, whenever we survey millennials or Gen Z about their top hopes and fears, home ownership is still kind of right up there, if not always kind of number one. So it seems like it will remain a priority, even though the context in which in which this these generations are trying to get into this housing market is changing, as we've discussed. Um, it seems unattainable, yet it's still a dream. Do you think that's that will continue? Do you think that will be ingrained in our in our psyche as we look to the future? I think it will, because many young people are growing up in households where they've seen their parents do that. And maybe their parents aren't big property investors or anything like that, but they've mm. seen even the value of the family home. And a lot of children growing up um, hear their parents say, I couldn't afford to buy this home that I now own. Uh, I couldn't afford to buy in this suburb in which I live. Uh, mm. And that's just testament to the fact that property prices do appreciate over time. And because they've seen that firsthand, because they've heard the stories, maybe from parents and indeed grandparents, because they hear all about it. You almost can't look at a news website uh, without hearing something about property. We do have a bit of a fascination with it in Australia. (laughs) And all of that, I think, is deeply ingrained in Australian young people. And we've got a different property market to what you see in Europe, where uh, there's not always, it doesn't always go up. I mean, America as well. You know, we had the great housing crash there because the fact is that um, under their consumer law, you can at any point hand the keys in, walk away um, because sometimes you know, the house does lose value and you owe more than it's worth uh, and and there's no onus on the homeowner. They can hand hand it back to the bank and move on. Not wow. so in Australia. You know, you're, you, you own that place and the debt that goes with that place. Um, and so it does mean that we've got a more stable market. We've got better security around it. The banks are very conservative on lending. We don't have the the so-called ninja loans, no income, no job, you know, no assets. Uh, but hey, we'll still lend you, you know, half a million dollars. Uh, yeah. Conservative lending market, strong consumer protection, a pretty informed market. A lot of uh, mortgage brokers that do their due diligence to help people understand the complexity of the market. You know, uh, a stable banking system with a reserve bank that that stands behind, um, you know, housing and really uh, will make sure any any troubles will be a soft landing. I mean, all of that um, creates, a, um, I think, a, a reality where young people say one way or other, I'd, I'd like to get into that. And I think the key is to start small, not to be too aspirational. You know, maybe it's it's with a sibling buying a little flat in a, in a country area and just getting a taste for it, maybe paying it down over time, but but seeing the value of it. Um, but but one way or the other, I think if if people do 
um, have some discipline and think of the long term and build slowly, uh, I think they can um, get some good outcomes from from property. Um, and if nothing else, you know, a little modest place in which to live uh, for one's future, that's a great outcome to boot. Absolutely. There's some really great advice there, Mark. And yeah, I was reflecting on on your answer and and that great Australian dream, you know, in, ingrained in us Aussies. And it definitely, I think, is a testament to the fact that Australia is an incredibly beautiful place to live. We've we've ranked on the top cities. Many of our cities rank on the top cities, um, but it is an expensive place at that as well as as our infographic shows. And as we think about this anti generational wealth transfer, I was actually wanting to ask you a question, Mark, of just around the bank of mum and dad and. Um, kids kind of moving back in with their parents, we sometimes get called, like we as in my generation, get called like the boomerang kids where we move out and boomerang back again. And it's again, it's always really interesting to observe or read about the trends that we talk about. And then I kind of see it in my own life. Like I could name probably 10 people or couples who are friends of mine who have moved out maybe when they they got married or before then or whatever and have moved back in with their parents sometimes with kids in tow sometimes even when they own their own home because the repayments are so much I mean was that something that like your general did you have a lot of friends who did that or is that something you feel like is happening more so with millennials and gen z rather than something that happened for your generation or is it just something that we've always young people have always done when they're starting out no, it's a it's a new phenomenon. At least mm. there's there's growth in the phenomena that we see today. The the stay at home young adult or the boomeranging uh, on back home to the parental place um, for all of the cost reasons that we discussed. Now mm. it's not new globally. So many cultures, right. you know, you stay at home until yeah. you're married, uh, even if that's uh, well in well through the young adulthood. Uh, if we go back historically, people stayed in that family unit again until they were married and had their own. Uh, family and sometimes uh, the, the the young family would would be raised there, but in modern times in Australia, um, it it hasn't been that way. So it's in some ways a return to the very old. Uh, but but we can understand the reasons. Firstly, parents do have an empathy for the tough economic predicament of their children. They mm. they don't even need to get across the metrics in the infographic to know that <laughs> housing is a lot harder to get into now than than they, they had it. Um, secondly, they want the best for their kids and want to support them in this. Hey, housing worked for them. They want to make sure it works for their kids. So they're happy to support them economically, if that even means staying at home a bit longer uh, to save up to do so. Um, thirdly, they... Uh, do appreciate it, even though they complain a lot about it. Uh, they, they, I think, appreciate having the younger ones at home at times mm-hmm. because it keeps them in touch with that next generation. It, in fact, justifies the reason for hanging on to that empty nest home, which if it was just the couple, probably they could have downsized by now. It, it keeps them in touch with the kids as they move into the young adulthood, which means they're probably not far off having their own children. And so it means that those grandkids won't be too far away as well. And of mm. course, all of that creates a social benefit, a connection, a well-being that comes from that familial connection uh, that we have as parents with children and the generation after. So there are a lot of positives. Uh, I think to make it work, it's best if parents um are aware of some of the negatives and, and maybe that's being taken for granted. And I think mm. it can work really well for the parents and the adult kids to sit down and maybe draw up a little memorandum of understanding. Sounds a bit formal, but maybe just a, <laughs> an agreement that, that gets looked at each year and it just says, here's what is expected of each of the parties. Maybe there is going to be a little bit of contribution to the to the costs um, board, if you like, because the energy costs and the uh, 
probably some of the the food that they might end up um, using um, yeah. does does uh, does start to not only stack up, but it can create a bit of irritation if there's the sense that that the young people aren't making a contribution a contribution around the division of labour. And so who's going to do the, the washing and the cleaning up and making contributions around the yard or whatever else? Um, an agreement that it will be looked at uh, in six months or a year so that any irritations can be aired because, yes, they're family, uh, they're children, but they're now adult children. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we wouldn't want resentment to build, which can happen if we don't talk these things through. So that's the benefit of an agreement. And also for the sake of the young adults, uh, they can get their own uh, little thoughts in there or, or ideas that you know, we are living independently now. We're adults. We're not returning as teenagers or kids anymore. And so that understanding on both sides, I think, will help uh, those relationships remain strong and the finances um, you know, for, for both sides of the equation um, end up in a good place as well. Yeah, and I guess when it's when it's working well and it's harmonious, like you said, there's benefits to both sort of parties if we're talking about, you know, parents and their children, including maybe keeping up to date with corn trends on TikTok. <laughs> but we talk about intergenerational households there, and we started talking about intergenerational wealth a little bit in terms of the baby boomers and, and that incredible national wealth that they currently possess. And you mentioned earlier, Mark, as they get older, of course, they'll imag- I imagine that will start to play on their minds and their hearts in terms of what they do with that wealth in the future. Um, You mentioned that, I think, $3 trillion wealth transfer, which is a really hard number even to wrap your head around. But what do you see um, that – do you see that intergenerational wealth maybe playing a role? I mean, you kind of alluded to that earlier that it might not be as helpful to the the maybe millennials or the children in terms of we might not see that same wealth accumulation for this generation just because of maybe this intergenerational wealth transfer. But does that play into maybe the future of this whole discussion around housing affordability and, and wealth accumulation? It sure does. And that's important to keep in mind that maybe the predictions won't be as dire for many because they'll be recipients of some of this largesse that does get passed on as the older generations downsize and move to aged care or um, or even beyond. So I think that's that's one part of the equation. And we need, we need to keep a few things in mind. Firstly, the today's parents uh, who have that wealth uh, will live longer and they'll spend later and so some of that may dissipate. Um, They also have obligations to fund their own aged care uh, Mm. if they've got those assets and certainly their retirement living. Uh, But even though they'll spend a fair bit of it, um, they'll also continue to make money as well uh, through some of the investments and some Mm. of that property ownership. So so it'll probably be a little bit um, uh, eroded, uh, but much of it will end up being passed on. Now, the, the challenge is that it won't be passed on equally across the generation, of course. So some people uh, in the younger generation will be uh, great recipients of this because of the assets of their parents and, of course, others will will, will not. And that may further exacerbate uh, the socioeconomic gaps that we have in Australia. So Mm. that's one, one downside of this. And it's all very well for us to think that even though it's a generation in debt with study debt and harder to get in property, hey, they're going to inherit a lot. Some will, not everyone will. Yeah. Uh, and on the other side, we're talking about the baby boomers owning $3 trillion in total um, and uh, having quadrupled their home values, but not everyone owns a home or property. And so some will rely on the pension as generations in the past have and mm. have quite a a modest um, uh, retirement indeed. So so that's the nature of things in Australia and that's why we have such 
great safety net from a government perspective. One reason we pay our taxes as well as social support and charities doing the, the great work. But but yeah, that's something to keep in mind. There'll be winners and there'll be some that won't come out as well. But but yeah, much of that three trillion will be passed on and that will be uh, quite the lifesaver economically for a lot of uh, today's 20-somethings. Yeah. And I think really wise, of course, to acknowledge that not everyone will be in that sort of situation. And even for those that are, who do get some sort of intergenerational wealth transferred to them, it is also about trying to be wise with that and invest that well rather than, yes, spend large or whatever it might be. So, And, and yeah. on that, I should say one more thing, and that is that it's not free money. I mean, hopefully mm. these adult children will be not just living with their parents to save money, but maybe even be there for their parents as they age in place, you know, as they need a bit yeah. more support, as they give up driving at night or or need yeah. to be picked up after the, the procedure at the doctors. And, and, and that practical help um, is so important for all uh, young people as they as they look after their their parents and we've discussed and written much about the sandwich generation but that's not yeah. far off for today's millennials where they'll not only have their own children that they're caring for but their parents that they'll need to look out for a little bit more as well mm. and and the fact is that a lot of these um, baby boomers are not going to want to uh, go into some form of um, uh, aged care they're going to want to live where they are and so it's going to be up to the parents uh, that the children of those parents to uh, to really look out for them a bit and hopefully they'll do that just as they've been looked after by their parents through their whole upbringing and they've even a little bit economically in their young adulthood uh, I'm sure they'll be there for their their parents as they need that support in in, in that latter stage but 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 that um, that's how life works and um, and of course uh, there might be some economic benefit that flows uh, down the track from that as well yeah absolutely really wise thoughts there, Mark. It needs to go both ways, definitely, um, if we're relying on yeah the banking mum and dad when it's our turn to be relied upon for sure. So thank you so much, Mark. A really interesting chat today. Really enjoyed it. Always great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks, Ash. And if people would like to stay up to date with our latest insights or access some of those infographics that we mentioned today, like the Fading Australian Dream or the Wealth and Income Distribution infographics, they're all available at our website, which is mccrindle.com. And of course, people can subscribe to the podcast or follow us on social media for other ways to engage with us and our research. So as always, if you've listened to this episode, thanks again for listening and bye for now.